0: Hi, I'm Bailey. And I'm Teffer. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult
1: lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! We have a special guest with us. As part of our patron perks, we, are, we have invited our patrons to join us for the Harry Potter series um, to do a book of their choice. And uh, the first book that was chosen was book three, Prisoner of Azkaban. Joining us today is Erica Stitchberry. Erica has been our patron pretty much from day one. And uh, we're so excited to have her on here. Erica, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I've been listening from the beginning. It's so exciting to be on for the first time.
1: A quick note that this patron perk is running throughout the series. If you are going, oh, I would love to have that perk, but I'm not a patron. Head to patreon.com slash the podcast. And pledge at any level, Uh, priority is given to higher pledges, and you can join us for an episode, but do it quick, because these episodes are going by fast. So Erica, you're going to give us a little, our little synopsis of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and then if you want to just tell us why you wanted to read this one with us, or talk about this one.
2: Sure. So I will give as brief but thorough a synopsis as I can given that i speed read pretty much this whole book this morning as a refresher so we begin as always at privet drive and harry's miserable wants to do his homework harry's not like other boys because he hates his birthday he gets happy because he gets some cake and then aunt marge comes and ruins his birthday again he blows up aunt marge doesn't get his hogsmeade permission slip signed which i remember keenly the dread of being a high schooler and not getting a permission slip signed. And then he escapes Privet Drive, sees a big black dog, there's the night bus, he spends three weeks living alone as a 13-year-old in Diagon Alley, which is just wild, and then he goes back to Hogwarts, and turns out Sirius Black is out to get him, and that's why it was such a big deal when he went missing, or other people thought he went missing, And then there's a lot of Quidditch stuff, Professor Lupin shows up at Hogwarts and teaches Harry how to cast a Patronus charm, which Harry uses successfully for the first time against Malfoy, also hilarious. And then Hermione takes too many classes and has to be in class all the time, including multiple times at once. And then there's some time travel, which is how Hermione was taking so many classes, and turns out Sirius Black is the good guy, and the end so i this has been my favorite harry potter book for a very long time which is why i wanted to talk about it i think it has a lot of heart it's about so many different relationships and really gets into feelings in a way that the earlier two books didn't and a lot of the later books also don't not always dealing with feelings in a healthy way but It addresses their existence a lot more than the other books, I think. And it's also all about pets and animals. And my cat is joining me for this recording, which I think is just great. Um, And I also, so last week, I know you were talking about sort of where the dividing line is between this being children's series and a young adult series. And you were saying that it's between books three and four. And I actually, I feel like that transition happens gradually throughout this book. There's a lot of maturing that happens in it. And I think that's why I like it the best.
1: That's such a great point, because definitely reading through this one, um, I was feeling like, oh, this feels more young adult than I remember it feeling. And I also remember reading this one as a teenager. And for me, this was like that feeling of every book getting better, right? Each book being better than the last is really what like sticks with me with the Harry Potter read through. And i remember getting to this one and being like okay like this is new this is stepped up there is more going on here and i do think a lot of that is the the emotional depth that you mentioned in the book Mm yeah
0: yeah i really i really like sort of what you highlighted about the emotional depth and the relationships because i this has historically not been one of my favorites Uh, But I really enjoyed this reread, and I think that that is part of it, is the sort of like the focus on relationships and the emotional sort of maturation of the characters, and I I really enjoyed it on this read-through.
2: A big component of that emotional maturation, I think, is the different light that things keep being cast in throughout the book. So at the beginning, we think that Sirius Black is a bad guy and Lupin is just some random teacher... And by the end of the book, we realized that those were actually two of Harry's dad's best friends in school. And that throws everything they've done throughout the book into such a different context that on a reread, or for me, you know, the 15th or something reread, it just puts Lupin's desire to have a cup of tea with Harry in his office into such a sweet and tender a nostalgic place that's perhaps inappropriate for a teacher to feel towards his student, but that's a different issue.
1: I don't know. I don't know if I would say that Lupin's feelings towards Harry are inappropriate. I think Lupin, more than any of the other adults in the book, models appropriate boundaries, especially in this one. And, you know, it's referred back to over and over as Lupin being the only competent defense against the dark arts teacher they ever have in their tenure at Hogwarts. I don't know. I think that's interesting to think about because I, I mean, you are a teacher and I am not a teacher. So I'll be (laughs) interested to hear more of your thoughts on that. Um, But I do feel like Lupin, more than more than the other people who have known Harry's parents, certainly more than Sirius, is good at drawing the line between Harry and James and good at saying, I'm going to meet this child and get to know them. But I understand that this is not my best friend come back to life.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that like you said Lupin really understands boundaries. And so you you can see on a reread that maybe he has this sort of special interest in Harry because of knowing his parents, but it's very like you, you I think you can see that Lupin's interest in Harry in this book is very much sort of like like y or something rather than like the very complex and not great uh, way in which Sirius regards him as sort of a stand in for James. Um, and I think you can also I think you can very much read that like maybe Lupin has like a specific interest in Harry because of this connection, but that he would also, I think, like show this same level of care to Harry just being like a student who's having a hard time. Um, and he was, like, coming from not a great background, regardless, because you also see, like, the way that he sort of, like, instinctively, like, reads Neville and, like, understands what's going on with Neville and, like, works to build Neville up, like, right from the start. Um, and I just, I, okay, can we just talk about Lupin? Because I love Lupin so much. And
2: he's such a good teacher. And he's, oh. I'm so glad that you both brought up Boundaries And I'm going to shout out to one of my favorite Harry Potter podcasts that's only Harry Potter, which is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and one of my favorite segments from that podcast, which is Failed Pedagogy at Hogwarts, because there's so much of that going on in this book. And I've read this so many times thinking that Lupin is a great teacher with appropriate boundaries. I think this might be the first time I've reread it since teaching full-time myself, and I I am less convinced of Lupin's being a good teacher objectively. I think he is a good teacher compared to their other teachers, certainly, but his lesson planning lacks the kind of substance and organization that, for example, Professor McGonagall, or I imagine Professor Flitwick has. We never actually see Professor Flitwick in action that often, but he seems to have a very organized curriculum, whereas Lupin seems to be coming in with an approach of what will keep these kids entertained, what will engage their interest, which are questions that a good teacher asks, but he sort of stops his lesson planning there. And for example, the first class that we see with the Bogart, he shows up to class late, he doesn't give them any background information, he puts Neville on the spot, And then he doesn't allow Harry and Hermione to fully participate in the class. And as a teacher, I object, I object mostly to his lack of explanation, honestly, that if you're going to go battle a magical creature, you might want to have a little more book learning first in a school setting. And that's what school is for. Whereas Lupin approaches this class in a really similar way to what we'll see from Harry and Dumbledore's army in book five, which is appropriate and expected from a 15 year old working with his peers. But I do agree that Lupin has the warm and nurturing spirit that makes a good teacher in the end. I just think he hasn't had enough formal training in curriculum development. Oh, and Bailey, the word you were looking for that means uncle like is avuncular and I just love that word so I thought I'd
1: throw that in there I had forgotten that word thank you I'm glad you brought up those like real specifics of the first class because I was gonna push you back on that on uh criticizing Lupin's teaching I don't is Lupin is he really late to the first class because I got the impression he was just like not there before Snape I I think what we see here is less a failing of lupin himself as a teacher and more a failure yet again of dumbledore's teacher selection because dumbledore often selects teachers for defense against the dark arts with an eye to keeping harry safe rather than an eye to giving his students the best education possible and you know lupin as far as we know i mean hogwarts teachers don't get formal teaching training you can graduate Hogwarts and immediately be invited back to teach at Hogwarts and you don't have to go through secondary education and you don't get trained in curriculum planning. And Lupin, as far as we know, has kind of been hiding out drinking Wolfsbane potion and being very poor for 10 years um, and just got invited to be a teacher and kind of like Harry, building Dumbledore's army, is also just sort of making it up on the fly. But I do want to give him a shout out in terms of uh, preparing his students for exams, because if his job was preparing students for their exams, he does do a good job with that. And that's something that gets mentioned later in the book or in the series, I cannot recall. But um, I also like that Bailey brought up Lupin's relationship with Neville, because that to me, really, is kind of what moderates my opinion of his relationship with Harry, because I do see Lupin having the same relationship with other students. And I also see Lupin actually having a mature adult relationship with Snape, and maybe being the only adult character that we see, apart from McGonagall, having a mature adult relationship with Snape and like having very clear boundaries there of like, we're never going to like each other, but he helps me out and I'm going to help him out because we're colleagues and that's what you do. But yes, it is hard to say if that is because Lupin is a particularly competent adult or if he is because he is the rare competent adult that we see in this series. Yeah, that's fair.
0: So I want to circle back to what you're talking about, about Hogwarts teachers being unqualified and not like having education that they have to go through. Cause I think in general, yes, the textual evidence supports that. I'm very curious about that with Lupin on this reread though, because of a very small detail when he's introduced, which is that. So when, when we meet him on the train, his uh, like suitcase is described and it's described as having professor RJ Lupin in peeling letters on it, which suggests that he has had this suitcase that says Professor R.J. Lupin for a long time. So this raises so many questions to me of like, did he, has he always wanted to be a teacher and like tried before? Was he like teaching in Muggle schools? I'm just, what is Lupin's backstory in Re this? Because I think that we have strong textual evidence that like he has at least at the very least conceived of himself as a professor or somebody has conceived of, his, of him as a professor for a long time. So I want to know why he has had this suitcase like for several years, at least that says professor RJ Lupin on it.
2: Bailey, I love that detail. And I'm now imagining Lupin having gone to Muggle teachers college because werewolves are clearly not accepted in wizarding society so maybe he has done teacher training and just didn't pay attention in the lesson planning classes and has been teaching perhaps not defense against the dark arts maybe something that you can have a more freeform curriculum with like A literature class or something at a community college like being a community college teacher would really fit in with his sort of shabby aesthetic I think I love that idea because or maybe it's aspirational that he's wanted to be a teacher and so he got that luggage made to remind himself of what he was hoping for I've also been thinking about just the absolutely wild power dynamics between the teachers at Hogwarts, including Lupin and Snape who were childhood enemies and Lupin is getting over that. And Snape is not able to, but also just there's a scene right after they get off the train for the first time and Madam Pumphrey offers Harry chocolate and Harry says, Oh, professor Lupin's already done that. And Madam Pumphrey says, Oh, we finally got a defense against the dark arts teacher who knows what he's doing. And that made me wonder, was Madam Pumphrey still the school nurse when lupin was a student like does she remember him as a student and how many of the teach how many of the other teachers on faculty were students of their colleagues at one point in time like we know dumbledore has been there forever i'm sure he taught all of the other teachers except maybe professor flitwick and mcgonagall and just the thought of having to transform from a teacher-student relationship to a, a collegial relationship, that's a really difficult thing to do. And it seems like almost everybody on a faculty at Hogwarts has had to do that with at least some of their colleagues.
1: This is a very interesting thought experiment, especially for me right now, because I am in the first week of a job as administrative staff at my undergraduate alma mater right now and have had that thought of... Oh, if campus is ever open, I will run into my profs around and have a different relationship with them now. Interesting. I love the idea, though, that Remus Lupin lost his best friends, was rejected from society, and went and built a life in the muggle world. Um, I want a spin off series about Remus Lupin teaching community college. Uh, I like to think that he also went abroad, like maybe he was in the colonies. But I I also, when thinking about him having been taught, having having gone to teacher's college, we have to remember that he would have gone to teacher's college in the 80s in Britain, which I don't think is necessarily the place to get the most forward, student-focused, excellent training and pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I would say probably... organization and curriculum building would be stronger but but I feel like probably his connection to the students and and personability is that a word I don't know is innate I have thought about the sort of like student prof relationship thing that happens but frankly like I went to a pretty small undergraduate program faculty wise and I think as far as universities go anyway it's extremely, extremely, like, commonplace, even in the muggle world, for people to end up working as colleagues with people who taught them.
0: Yeah, it is fascinating to think about these sort of, like, t- like student-colleague, or, like, student-teacher and then colleague relationship dynamics, because we do have, like, we have a subset of the Hogwarts teachers who are all pretty much the same age, like, Trelawney, Snape, um, Lupin. And then we have, yeah, this whole, like, I'm pretty sure, I think there's canonical references to um, the Marauders being taught by McGonagall. Um, there's definitely, definitely Madame Pomfrey was the matron when Lupin was at school. That is referenced for sure, because it's referenced that she would, like, bring him to the Whomping Willow to transform. So many interesting dynamics. I know on Which Please once they referenced that they want, like, an HBO miniseries about the Hogwarts professors, and I would just like to co-sign that I want that so much.
2: Related to student-teacher dynamics in that... It's also a child-adult boundary that I think is negotiated very weirdly. At the beginning of this book, as I mentioned in my summary, Harry spends three weeks living by himself in a room at the Leaky Cauldron at the suggestion of the Minister of Magic, which is just such a bizarre dynamic. Why doesn't he get sent to live with the Weasleys? Why doesn't he get sent home to his aunt and uncles, who are his legal guardian? Why is he given complete control of his own finances at age 13? There's a line... I I have it bookmarked, so I should be able to find it quickly. Once Harry had refilled his money bag with gold galleons, silver sickles, and bronze knuts from his vault at Gringotts, he had to exercise a lot of self-control, not to spend the whole lot at once. Why does a 13-year-old have direct access to his own bank account and is expected to, you know, have this kind of long-term planning for his own finances? I just don't understand. And and the fact that the Minister of Magic is the one encouraging him to live on his own for three weeks, and it seems like he, he's eating all of his meals at the ice cream parlor. I'm just, you know, as a... 13-year-old, I thought it sounded great. As an adult, I'm really worried about who's responsible for Harry's, not, not his bodily safety that seems to be well taken care of, but just his day-to-day well-being and like, are you showering, Harry? Are you eating a vegetable now and then? Because really, uh, grown people can't be expected to do those things for themselves all the time. Certainly 13-year-olds can't be.
1: I have a theory about this, actually. My theory is that it's kind of innate wizard-born disdain for muggle-borns and that Cornelius Fudge assumes that Harry, having been taken care of by muggles, has been taking care of himself. I think there's an innate assumption that muggles are unable to raise wizard children. And so for a lot of wizard-born adults, they think, well, he's been out in the muggle world for 13 years and doing okay. So he must know how to take care of himself and and just assume uh because there's an assumption there that a wizard born child knows more than a muggle born adult. That is my theory on it.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, because I was wondering about that with the finances is basically just like if you are in a situation like Harry where you're you have legal guardians who are not your parents, but then you also have, you know, an estate that your parents have left you. Um, And if your legal guardians are muggles, then they're only your legal guardians for some things, but they're not in charge of your finances or anything. So it's just like, ah, I guess you've turned 11. now you can look after your own money. And it is, you're right, Erica, it's bananas. And it is this very much like, they're like, oh, Fudge is very much like well the thing that's important is that he is protected from Sirius Black which he will be if he's in Diagon Alley and all these people are keeping an eye on him and doesn't matter yeah what he eats if he bathes and in some respects we see Harry showing a remarkable amount of like self discipline for a thirteen year old in this book because there's the whole thing you referenced at the beginning Erica with like he has to he has to be motivated to do his own homework. Um, with like his guardians directly forbidding him from doing it, which is quite remarkable uh, for for a 13 year old that he is like this this motivated to actually do it,
2: even though he's like actively being prevented from doing so. I love that point about the homework, Bailey, and I think this is actually a really deep piece of character development on Harry's part in that he is just a very contrary person, and he will do whatever he's told not to do. Malfoy knows this. Malfoy often tries to play on this character trait by telling Harry that, you know, he isn't supposed to do something, for example, going after Sirius Black But the only time we ever see Harry wanting to do his homework is when he's at the Dursleys and it's his only magical outlet. When he's at Hogwarts and he can play Quidditch, you'd better believe he's going to go play Quidditch and ask Hermione to do his homework for him.
1: Um, So I want to move on to another, another teacher and another question about how Hogwarts selects and trains their teachers and another question about how exactly does Dumbledore decide a professor is the best person for the job? And... Also irresponsible first class uh, structures and also something that I am very torn on, which is Hagrid as professor of Care of Magical Creatures. I think the like the issue I have with this is that I feel that Hagrid is overall too responsible a person when it comes to the care of children to be as blundering in his lessons as he is. Because when Hagrid is, I mean, A, not drunk, which Hagrid is drunk a lot and is not teaching a class, he's actually pretty good about paying attention to the safety of students and stopping bullying and stuff. And then somehow when he's teaching a class, he's like, you know what, I'm going to have hippogriffs and I'm not just going to do like an example of hippogriffs where I am interacting with the hippogriffs and the children are behind a fence safely. Um, No, I'm going to send the children to the hippogriffs and just kind of hope for the best and and that's both you know bad teaching but it also to me does not feel in keeping with Hagrid's character. Hagrid puts himself at risk but Hagrid doesn't really put other people at risk unnecessarily.
0: I'm actually I'm gonna push back against you on this a little bit tougher because I think I agree with you that Hagrid like is a conscientious person and does really care about the safety of students I think that Hagrid is sometimes bad at assessing the risk to other people um, because of a sort of like failure of putting himself in other people's shoes is not exactly the right thing. But I think that this is very, a very similar parallel. um, And so in keeping with this character, to something that he did last book, which was send Harry and Ron into the acromantula nest. Um, And he did that thinking that they would be safe because he is safe around them. Also, he always sort of thinks the best of magical creatures. And so I think he sort of knows in his mind that they're dangerous. But because he is so good with them, and I think he is just sort of inclined to think favorably of these sort of quote-unquote monstrous creatures, I don't think he fully fully processes how dangerous they can be we saw that with Norbert as well um, and then I think also he um, maybe doesn't quite just doesn't quite have an understanding of child behavior and psychology well enough because he did give the students all the information they needed to be safe around the hippogriffs and if they had followed his directions they would have been uh, but he just didn't He didn't prepare for the fact that he's dealing with a bunch of 13-year-olds and half of them aren't going to listen to him. So I think there's that. I think also, like, Hagrid is really interesting as a teacher because I think Hagrid is such a good example of, like, someone can be, like, a wonderful, kind, caring person and also be extremely knowledgeable in their subject matter and not be a good teacher.
2: I think a lot of what I see in Hagrid as a teacher but also just generally as an adult interacting with children is that he doesn't always draw the line between his own abilities and the abilities of children. And in some ways, that's a really beautiful thing. That means that Harry and Ron and Hermione can have a real, true friendship with someone who's if we do the math based on knowing that Hagrid was in school at the same time as Tom Riddle, Hagrid is minimum 55, 60 years their senior, which is a, it's such a rare thing to see true intergenerational friendships like that that aren't based around care dynamics, which in Hagrid's case, yes, sometimes he does take care of them, but not always effectively, And as Bailey brought up in in the second book, he sends the kids into the forest. And in the first book, he sends them up the astronomy tower with a baby dragon. It's a dragon. Like it might be a baby, but it's a dragon. And he thinks it's okay to give them that responsibility. And so I, I think the hippogriff incident is a really good illustration of this too, that he's so excited about this thing that he wants to share with the kids and doesn't stop to think about the fact that Not everyone in the class will listen to him. Not everyone in the class will want to participate. At no point in the lesson does Harry get a chance to say, no, I don't want to do that. He volunteers to approach the hippogriff and ends up writing it without the option of turning that down at any point, which is upsetting from a student-teacher dynamic. But from Hagrid's perspective... It's just a side effect of his excitement about this animal, about this subject material.
1: Yeah, you've both you've both opened my eyes to instances of Hagrid uh, recklessly putting children in danger that I had forgotten. Um, and I think the point ba- that Bailey brought up and that Erica reiterated that Hagrid does not draw the line between his own abilities because it's not just about them being children. It's also about him being half giant and he is larger and more imposing than adult humans let alone children and also tougher like there are the references to giant skin being thicker and generally having like higher defense stats than humans do so that's interesting because i i would believe that hagrid when hagrid thinks back to his own childhood and his own childhood abilities with animals Mm -hmm. there is an element of things not hurting him as much and not being as dangerous to him because he is larger and stronger and tougher than humans and that's interesting I will say though that if Dumbledore had decided I mean Dumbledore who has always assumed Hagrid's innocence uh and Hagrid's name gets cleared and he like does he even get a wand back like I don't know is that ever (laughs) clarified if Hagrid had been again trained as a teacher I think he would not make as many mistakes I think if anybody had sat down with him and said, okay, these are 13-year-olds and they are human 13-year-olds and here are the limitations of human 13-year-olds, he would have you know, reconsidered his lesson plans. And because we see that, because after Malfoy gets injured, he makes them just feed flobberworms, which are completely non-threatening for the rest of the year um, because he's so chagrined by having put his students at risk. Uh, So this is yet again a point where I think Hogwarts needs to have a a teacher training program that you have to complete before you can become a teacher. And not just throw people who, like Bailey said, can be nice people who are excellent in their field at something and assume they can teach.
0: Yeah, so Hogwarts is a great um, metaphor for the university on that that front Uh, sometimes. I mean, I have had excellent profs in university, but I have also had some people who are very good in their field and don't know anything about teaching. So I want to, I want to talk about one other thing with Hagrid that I think will segue into another subject that I think we need to touch on, which is there's a moment that I love with Hagrid in this book where I think is one of, one of like few examples in this series of like an adult really like talking to the children about like emotions and interpersonal dynamics in a really helpful way that helps them grow as people. Um, Which is, I really, really love that Hagrid sits Ron and Harry down at one point and is like, you two are being terrible friends right now. And you need to shape up because you're treating Hermione horribly. And, like, I understand that the original conflict had some fault on both sides. But, like, this is your friend. She is struggling. She
2: is suffering. You're being assholes. Be better. That spot was really moving to me on this reread ron and harry don't have a great track record towards hermione in general i almost think they've come to think of her as being impervious to emotions because she doesn't let her feelings show a lot and most of the reason they come out in this book is that she's just so tired she doesn't have control over them anymore and this is a really pivotal moment in their relationship with each other hagrid makes them think about hermione as a full person and not just a brain and as as someone who sometimes gets cast in that role of being the brain that's a really important piece of development both in the trio's relationships with each other but also the audience's relationship with hermione it makes her more of a real rounded character
1: I talked about astrology last week and if you will forgive me for taking another brief foray into astrology uh, because I want what you said about Hermione doesn't let her emotions like rule her and Harry and Ron do. Harry Potter is a Leo. He is a fire triad. It's just a lot of big. Ron is a Pisces. I am a Pisces. Pisces have a lot of feelings and are all in their feelings all of the time. And Hermione is a Virgo and Virgos are known for being very controlled, very goal-oriented um, and not all in their feelings. And I, I, I just wanted to point that out because I always think it's really funny when a book that I where I don't think the author necessarily would have thought about the astrology signs but they still match up I always really like that uh but also yes like Ron and Harry are frequently terrible friends to Hermione and Hermione is always almost always a very good friend to them and I like this thing in this book where the two who are all in their feelings all the time are the boys and the one who has a cool head all the time as the girl because that is refreshing yeah that's really fun that that that's that's the dynamic because it absolutely is Um, like Hermione's the
0: logical one and Harry and Ron are just kind of emotional messes a lot of the time and it's great but yeah just Hermione in this book uh like poor Hermione I just, I, I can empathize, I can empathize with a lot Hermione a lot, like, most of the time, but I think especially in this book where she's just, like, bitten off so much because she just wants to do everything, and it's so exciting, and she can't miss any opportunities to learn, and she's just, like, destroying herself with stress because of it, and you just want to, like, wrap her up in a soft blanket and give her a cup of tea and be like, sweetheart, it's Okay. You can't do everything.
2: I also relate so strongly to Hermione's academic FOMO. It's the only kind of FOMO I've ever experienced personally. But I do want to push a little bit on Ron and Harry being at fault and Hermione not being at fault in this particular issue because it all started because Hermione was super dismissive of Ron's feelings About his pet rat Who turns out to be a traitor and a murderer Fine, whatever But Ron thinks he's his pet rat Who he's lived with and loved for 13 years And they've presumably been sharing this house For 13 years Even though he was initially Percy's rat Um, And before that he was Peter Pettigrew Sorry, spoilers You've had a while to read this book (laughs) Um, (laughs) But Ron is... Ron loves scabbers, which is a gross thing to say about a 13-year-old boy feeling towards a man in his mid-30s who's been pretending to be a rat for 12 years. But Ron genuinely loves his pet. Hermione genuinely loves her pet, but refuses to acknowledge those emotions in anyone else. And this is also highlighted when, um, I think it's Lavender, when Lavender's rabbit gets eaten, and Hermione, two sentences after finding out that Lavender's baby rabbit has been eaten by a fox, tells Lavender to be logical about it. This tells me that Hermione is just, I, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she's so overworked she has no room to think about anybody else, but she's just not thinking about other people in this situation, and, and Ron is not the only person at fault here.
1: That's an extremely good point. And I think a very realistic cautionary tale about what happens uh, with us type A overproductive people when we get so caught up in getting everything done and getting everything right and getting all the A's Um, because I think all three of us have that tendency to then like be so caught up in our own stress and in our own like but I have to complete this that we completely forget about other people's feelings also a very Virgo trait actually but y- yes that's a really excellent point point. And, and now I'm like questioning everything I said about it because actually yeah <laughs> she's really being dismissive and not paying attention and with a 13 year old you know her parents should never have let her take on the schedule. McGonagall should never have given her a time turner but I think McGonagall was a Hermione in her time. A lot of irresponsibility in the adults towards Hermione which you know is something that can be said about the way adults dealt with gifted children in the 80s and 90s actually.
2: I really want to say something about the time travel episode which is so pivotal in this book and I've been interacting with a lot of literature that deals with time travel recently and i think this book does it very well in that there's no ambiguity about whether the time travel has happened or not because of things that don't make sense without it happening and it's actually an example i use a lot in my teaching that harry does the patronus as well as he does because he realizes he's already done it and if as a teacher if you can get your student or as a person who's trying to learn something if you can get yourself to realize that you have already done something that you're trying really hard to master or to do for the first time if you it's not even hope it's the knowledge that it has already come to pass and therefore is a reproducible event that's just such a helpful illustration for me to have in my arsenal and I do specifically reference this book because I'm usually working with teenagers when we talk about it so that that specific scene with the Patronus with Harry's sudden realization of his own competence I actually wonder if that might be the moment when the series shifts from being a children's book to being a young adult book is that Harry realizes he's had this power all along. But it's the realization that he has it that allows him to use it.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because really the realization that that element of it realizing he can do it because he's already done it is so potent. And I think is is kind of what Harry being able to generate a corporeal patronus, which impresses everything everybody hinges on, is that he saw himself do it and so he could do it. But the other part of that realization that is so potent and poignant is Harry realizing that the person he thought was his dad taking care of him was actually himself. There's a transition there from being a kid, I mean, really kind of heartbreaking moment, but but really important moment of being a little kid, waiting for your parent to come and rescue you, and then realizing that you're the one rescuing yourself. I do feel like that ties kind of nicely with actually with the irresponsible independence of a 13 year old living in London alone for for three weeks. Uh, It's very much a book about Harry learning to take care of himself, which he then carries way too far in the rest of the series. Erica, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Prisoner of Azkaban.
2: It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: If you want to be on one of the Harry Potter episodes, run, don't walk to patreon.com slash Podcast and uh, pledge at any level to get a shot to be on one of these. Thanks for listening
0: to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can follow us on Twitter at Yapodcast yeah and individually at the Balesosaurus and at teferbear. If you like
0: the show and want to help us make it even better, consider being like Erica and supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, including on one of the Harry Potter episodes, and more. Head to patreon.com slash to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Suchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Penhope, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever.
1: We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic.
0: You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and by sharing this episode with a friend, or by subscribing to us on Spotify.
1: Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemmy and is edited by Tom Zalatni as part of
0: the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetworks.com. Dungeons. Dragons. Canada. The
1: Multiverse Theory. Corgis. Queer representation. Reconciliation. Angels. Demons. Squirrels. Planned. Moose. Moose and
0: squirrels. Sorcerers. Dinosaurs. Barbarians. Forests. Giants. Rogues. Warlocks. Plains. Sewers. Lavender natural toonie a canadian dungeons and dragons podcast right here on the upford network hi i'm howard mitnick host of gateway music join me as i talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine
2: available on the upford network and wherever you get your podcasts